this morning as uh, we celebrate our resurrected Savior, this resurrection morning, um, I would like to read for you a little prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, so a consolation, really, of, of Puritan, various uh, authors of Puritan prayer. And I want to read for you um, Resurrection. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is severed, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that is in Christ, that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, in his ascension I shall be glorified. O adorable Redeemer, thou who was lifted up upon a cross art ascended to highest heaven, thou who as man of sorrows was cast down, was, 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 excuse me, was crowned with thorns. Art thou now as Lord of life, wreathed with glory? Once, no shame more deep than thine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now, no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the trumpet car, leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life. Thy resurrection is my peace. Thy assurance is my hope. Thy prayers, my comfort. This morning's text comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 32. The title of this morning's message is Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. So I invite you to turn there with me to Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 32. We'll begin by reading the text together. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 32. Then Moses, Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an, as, as an 
ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land, which the Lord will give you, and he has promised you, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. And the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, the firstborn of the captives, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at midnight and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant story ever told, period. It's not even close. It's the centerpiece of redemptive history. And the Old Testament is part of redemptive history. And as we gather together here as the body of Christ, really we gather as ministers of the gospel. Now, there are roles for us, uh, according to scripture, there are roles for men, there are roles for women, there are roles for um, husbands and wives, there are roles for mothers and fathers. We have roles that are distinctive. We're all equal in Christ, but we have distinctive roles. Yet, to some degree, all of us here that are genuine followers of Jesus Christ are ministers of the gospel. And we're to go forth and carry that gospel. And scripture is our guiding light as we go forth and carry the gospel. So the men, as they lead in teaching this church, uh, scripture is our guide. Fathers, as you lead your homes, your wives and your children, scripture is your guide. Moms, as you teach your children, scripture is your guide. Ladies, uh, mature ladies, as you mentor and teach uh, the younger ladies in the faith, Scripture is your guide. So Scripture is our guide as we minister the gospel. That being true, I want you to see that the Old Testament is part of redemptive history. The Old Testament is not an historical narrative on moralism. Amen? It is not. <clears throat> So we want to teach and we want to preach the gospel through the Old Testament. And we want to draw out the good news of the gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel is central in the Old Testament. So when I say that, I'm not saying that we allegorize every Old Testament text. That's not what we do. We don't find a symbol of Jesus in every, uh, every nook and cranny of the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, we do this. We take the historical narrative in its context, and we allow the typology to naturally flow out and unfold in the, in the historical narrative itself. 
So the Old Testament is not about being noble or making better choices or doing the right thing. That's not the message of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, our nobility, our good intentions, our honest effort is not good enough to satisfy God, is it? No. No character that we find in the Old Testament, his or her nobility, his or her good intentions, his or her good efforts are never enough to satisfy God. No one on the face of the earth has capacity to satisfy God's holy standard, which is what? His law, moral perfection. We are all born in Adam, born in sin, dead in our trespasses in sin, born and shaped in our iniquity. We are all fallen in Adam and have no capacity in and of ourselves to live up to God's standard. The Old Testament doesn't picture that reality. Thus, the Old Testament preaches the gospel. And not only does the Old Testament preach the gospel, but the Old Testament has a password to understanding how we are to preach the gospel, how we are to access the riches of the meta narrative of the Old Testament. That password is Jesus. Jesus is the password to accessing the Old Testament riches of the meta-narrative of the redemption of God's people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament continually pictures the redemptive work of Christ, right? And as we've been working through Ephesians, we've been talking about that language, that term specifically, redemption. What does it mean? How is it applied to our lives? How does the application of redemption relate to our lives as we live out the gospel to the glory of God here in our current climate, in our current context where God has placed us? How do we go forth and live out the reality of our redemption? Well, do you remember that uh, definition I just gave you for the term the other week? Uh, really, from I got it from John, John MacArthur. It's worth repeating. Again, just a, a little uh, very con, con, uh, precise definition of redemption from MacArthur. Redemption, the act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price of sin, which has outraged his holiness. And that's a good little snapshot of redemption. And the most obvious picture of redemption in the Old Testament is found right here in this text. Now, again, should we be working this out, uh, men, as we're teaching through the Old Testament here and working out uh, the, the, the centerpiece of Christ found in the Old Testament? Yes, we should. As it, as it flows out of redemptive history, yes. And I must say, this, this, I cherry-picked this one. This is, the, this is the easiest one in the book right here in chapter 12. But it seems the reality of our risen Savior. It pictures the redemption of Christ, foreshadowing the work of Christ on the cross and the proof of Christ in his resurrection that he is indeed the Savior, the promised Messiah, the resurrected one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the most obvious picture of Christ's redemptive work that we can see in the Old Testament. It's right here in chapter 12. So let's look at it a little bit this morning. Now, just by way of context here, 
when we pick up uh, the text here in, in verse, verse 21, nine plagues have already taken place. Okay? At this time, in this context, in Egypt. Three sets of three plagues. And each set is structured with a purpose. And that purpose is to strike at Egyptian theology and worldview. So the plagues set God's people apart and simultaneously attack the theology and worldview of the Egyptians. Now, why is this so? Why did this take place? Why these three sets of three plagues that kind of drive that same reality? The setting apart of Israel and the tearing down, the destroying the theology of Egypt and the worldview of the Egyptians. That system. Well, Israel must be set apart theologically as well as geographically. And the most important aspect there is the theological setting apart. They need to be delivered from the Egyptian theological system. They had adopted the worldview and theology <coughs> of their culture. Ouch, babe, somebody. They fell prey to idolatry. They didn't believe their God could deliver them. If anything, they believed their God had abandoned them or was somehow not as potent as the gods of Egypt. They had fallen prey to the idolatry of the Egyptians. And God delivers the Israelites in this manner. This way he could have delivered them anyway, but he delivers them in this way. Because this way is the way in which the belief of the Egyptian gods could not be seen other, uh, in any other way by the Israelites other than idolatry. The Israelites must capture that reality that the gods of the Egyptians are idols and nothing else. And so God brings about this series of plagues to bring his people not just another position geographically, but theologically out of their idolatry to where they see the Egyptian gods as they rightly should. Nothing more than idols. And the same should be true for us. Anything other than the one true God and the hope of Jesus Christ is nothing more than idolatry. Amen? Nothing's changed. In that regard. So with the plagues, God strikes at the heart of Egyptian idolatry. But the last plague, the last plague is different. The tenth plague is different. It's the mother of all plagues. And with the last plague, God tells the Egyptian, or excuse me, tells the Israelites, tonight, this night, prepare yourself. This night, you're going to leave. This is the plague. This is the one. This is the plague that will deliver you out. So prepare yourself. Get ready. 
you're going to leave. And that brings us to the plan that we see there in verses 21 and 23. Look there with me uh, at the plan. So then Moses called for all the elders uh, of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a, a, a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when you see this, the Lord passing through, he will pass through your door and he will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and to smite you. That's grace. That's mercy and grace. That's a setting apart of a people. That's setting apart a people, not giving them what they deserve. That's mercy. And so Moses calls the elders here and he tells them what? Get the lambs and kill the Passover lamb and put the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. Why? Because when you do this, the blood on the lentils and the doorposts will prevent the destroyer from coming into your house and killing you. He's not going to enter your house and strike you because the blood of the lamb has been placed on the lentil and the doorpost. So nothing is left to chance here, right? There's no maybes, if, ands, or buts. This is definitive. This is what real transpired. This is the plan. Do this and you will be spared. Sacrifice the lamb and you will be spared. So these very specific instructions are directly linked to the redemptive work that we have in Christ. They are a picture. Not every single uh, uh, phrase And the Old Testament is a picture. Is it in general a picture? Yes. But here we find a very specific picture, and it's directly linked to our redemption in Christ. The Passover lamb is a picture. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, of the redemptive work that Christ will do in space and time. It's picturing that here and God bringing the Israelites out, of, uh, out from Egyptian bondage with the 10th plague. What's being pictured there, what's being foreshadowed there, is the redemptive work that we have in Christ. It's a picture of what Christ will do spiritually in space and time on behalf of his people to redeem them out of their bondage to sin and to bring them into, into his glorious light of his salvation accomplished on the cross. It is a picture of that redemptive reality. It's a foreshadowing. So what has to happen? These are very specific instructions. Let's look at it again so we have ourselves straight here as we look at this picture, this foreshadowing. What has to happen? Well, they have to kill the lamb, right? The lamb has to die. Why? There's no salvation if the lamb is not killed. Kill the lamb. The lamb is a substitute, and a substitute must be offered in order for the sin debt to be paid. A penalty of sin requires death. Sin is a death mark on humanity. 
and there must be a penalty paid for sin. Sin is an affront against God's holiness. Where there is sin, there must be a blood atonement made. There must be a sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement made. The Passover lamb is that picture, is that sacrifice. So the lamb must die for the penalty of death to be paid before a holy God, the penalty of death that is an offense to a holy God. For that penalty to be paid, there must be death. There must be bloodshed. There must be a blood atonement. And here, the lamb must be killed. So without death, the death of the lamb, there is no deliverance. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, there it is, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate this feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is our Passover. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. The lamb that was killed as substitute for our sin debt before God that we could not pay in and of ourselves. So we are saved. We are delivered. We are redeemed because God killed the lamb. If you sit here as a genuine blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you are so because God killed the lamb. That has purchased your redemption and nothing else. That and that alone. The lamb must die for there to be deliverance. What must they do? Kill the lamb. The lamb must die for there to be deliverance. What else? Well, they are to apply the blood. You see that? Moses tells them, kill the Passover lamb and then apply the blood. Why? Because the blood of the lamb keeps the death angel away. Nothing else. It's the blood of the lamb. And the blood of the lamb alone that keeps the death angel away. Now, Christ is our Passover lamb. And the atoning blood of Christ has atoned for our sin debt before a holy God. He is the perfect Passover lamb without spot or blemish. Christ has come. He has taken on flesh. He has trod this fallen world under the law of God. He has lived perfectly. He has taken his place of vicarious death. He has gone to the cross willingly there to pay a sin debt on behalf of all who will repent and believe on him. There, he bears the sin debt of all his people bearing the white, hot, righteous wrath of God the Father that is poured out on Christ. And he takes his righteousness, perfectly lived out under the law, and he imputes it into the account of the sinner who believes on him. And there, Christ becomes the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for all who repent and believe, leaving God the Father just and that he does not allow sin to go unpunished and offend his holy name, and the justifier of all who repent and believe on Christ. 
He is the perfect Passover lamb without spot and blemish, without spot or blemish. He has identified with humanity and that he has taken on flesh and he has lived perfectly under the law of God. He is the only perfect sacrifice. He is the spotless lamb without blemish. And he has gone voluntarily to the cross that he might be the substitutionary atoning death for sinners. The blood must be applied. First Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hopes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why must there be death? Why must there be uh, atoning blood? Because of sin. Our God is holy, and our sin is an affront against His holiness. And there must be a death, an atoning blood sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin debt. And the only one who can pay that penalty is Christ. Now here the text tells us to be holy. Are we to strive as the Spirit of God indwells us? Are we to strive to obey Christ and to be holy, to walk in righteousness? Yes, we are. Are we going to live perfectly this side of glory? No, we are not. But all our righteousness, all that is true and right and obedient about any, any second of our Christian life is wrapped up and consumed in Christ. We are holy in that we are in Christ. And there we find our purpose. There we find our hope. There we find our meaning. There we find our capacity to obey and honor God. As we trod this fallen world to be light, there we find every capacity, every minutia of who we are as those redeemed to the Father. We are in Christ. Where is our holiness? Are we marked off as holy? Yes. Why are we marked off as holy? Because we are in Christ. There is nothing about us. That sings of anything pleasing to God in and of ourselves. Our capacity to walk in righteousness and what and to what degree we can as we struggle with sin, the side of glory is found in Christ. Our capacity to be forgiven and, and maintain our right standing before a holy God is found in Christ. Our holiness that marks us off, is found in Christ. We are identified in Christ. Our God is holy, therefore be holy. That holiness is found in Christ alone. We have been saved through his blood. He is the, he is the sacrificial atoning death. He has removed our sin debt. Slay the lamb. There must be death. Apply the blood. The atoning blood must be applied. And what else? And none of you, verse 22, shall go outside the door of his house until morning. Slay the lamb. Apply the blood. Stay inside. Stay inside. 
Why? Stay inside because there is no safety anywhere else except behind the bloodstained doors. Amen? None. Salvation is no other place. This is an exclusive claim to Christ alone. Right here, pictured in the Old Testament. Now, I know we live in a pluralistic culture. I know it is taboo to speak of exclusive claims. But funny, Scripture just doesn't really worry about the the pluralism of our culture. Scripture is not really concerned with that. This is an exclusive claim that belongs to Christ alone. It is his atoning blood, his sacrificial death that grants us right standing with God. It is his holiness that hides us as holy and acceptable before God. And it is his work and his alone that sets us apart. There is no other. There is no other hope. There is no other safety. There is no other salvation found anywhere else. It is in Christ alone. It's an exclusive statement to Christ's salvation. Salvation in Christ alone. Beyond the doorpost is certain death. Don't go outside. Slay the lamb, apply the blood, stay inside. Outside the door is certain death. There's only life inside. Don't go out. If you're found outside the door, you will die. That's an exclusive claim of salvation. So cultural Christianity does not pass that test. You can maybe have the come and go blues in this culture, but you can't have the come and go gospel. You can't have a come and go faith. You can't have a come and go Christianity. Stay inside. If you leave, then here's what's pictured. Here's the biblical message that's found here in this typology. If you leave, you're not trusting by faith. This salvation is a salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. You go outside the door, you're not trusting by faith in Christ alone. And that's death. There's one right answer in this equation. Stay inside the door where the lamb has been slain and the blood has been applied. Anything beyond that door is not trusting by faith. You see that picture? It's a clear Old Testament picture that speaks the redemption that we have in the resurrected Savior. If you leave, you're not trusting by faith, and you will die. The blood of the Lamb is your only hope. There is salvation in Christ alone. No other salvation, no other safety, no other security. Stay inside. That's it. Nothing can be added. You see that? There's no stay inside and it's just stay inside. Nothing can be added. No supposed security from this world. No self-righteous works of ceremony or solitude. Nothing. By faith alone, stay inside. You must believe that Christ is enough. Amen.
church, you must believe that Christ is enough all day, every day. Stay inside, and that's it. The lamb has been slain. The blood has been applied. And all who trust in him stay inside behind the blood-stained door. Amen. That's the plan. It's straightforward, isn't it? That's the plan. Now let's look at the picture. Verses 24 through 28. Well, 23, you stay inside. The destroyer will not come to your house and smite you. That's grace, man. What mercy. Verse 24. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land, which the Lord will give to you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over our houses and the sons of Israel, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel and Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Well, the Passover supper is just that. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of the sacrificial lamb. Now, there were nine plagues, right? And you can probably, most of you, you can probably recall them in your mind. But there were nine plagues before the 10th plague. If you think about it, I mean, the Israelites had been under some, all bondage is bad. Some bondage is worse than others. They, they were, their bondage was pretty bad. And they'd been there for a while. And this, the, the worst part, it's not the physical bondage or, or the things that can manifest from them. I'm not trying to aggrandize that. There could be some bad things there. But it's the worldview. It's the saturation of their minds and their souls. It's the theology that seeps in. They embraced the theology of their day. They embraced the theology of their culture. Well, it must be so. I mean, look at us. Here we are. God can't deliver us. Maybe the Egyptian gods are stronger. You see the mindset? You see the thinking? All the subtleties. But here's the picture. Nine of them. And they were profound, right? I'm thinking about bloody Nile. That's probably enough for me. We're out. (laughs) Pharaoh's not going to do anything with that. We're gone. Not so. God hardens his heart. At one point, you know, they would just say, okay, okay, mercy. I mean, flies, you know, focus, mercy. And then they're thinking, this is it. They would change his mind. Nine plagues they go through. Surely this will be the one. And then their hearts are broken. Their dreams are crushed. Surely this is our ticket out. But now, on the 10th plague, the last plague, when this plague is to be unleashed, God tells them. He tells them the plan. 
This one, you prepare for a life outside of Egypt. Never tells them before. Now he lets them know, you're going out. You prepare yourselves for a life outside of Egypt. This is what it needs to look like. Your delivery is coming now. And you're no longer going to live like you lived when you were in Egypt. Amen, somebody. Amen. You're not living that way anymore. I'm bringing you out. I'm delivering you. This is a picture, y'all, of our redemption in Christ. You're not going to live like an Egyptian anymore. You're not going to live like you're under Egyptian sway and Egyptian bondage, under Egyptian theology, under Egyptian worldview. You're not living like that. You prepare yourself. I'm delivering you. I'm coming out. So for Israel, the Passover supper was to be performed over and over and over, right? That's what the text tells us. You just keep doing this. Now, why? Why? Could they not understand it the first time? You just keep doing this. Well, here's why. Because not that they couldn't understand it. It's that they could never afford to forget it. You can never afford to forget this. You can never get complacent with this. Complacency might not be a good thing in some aspects of life, but complacency is not acceptable ever with this. You cannot forget it. So the Passover became just that, that grand ritual, that great reminder, that centerpiece of the sacrificial system, all of the sacrificial system and all of its workings and its details and its intricacies all culminated around this, the Passover, the Passover supper. That's the centerpiece. And year after year, there was a Passover lamb slaughtered to remind them that the blood had been applied and people had been delivered. That's the picture of Passover. That's what Passover tells us. All its intricacies, that's really what it comes down. That's what it says. Passover is a picture of this. Blood has been applied and people have been delivered. That's what it says. Over and over and over. Blood has been applied. People have been delivered. Peace and carries. Blood applied. People delivered. Again and again and again. And also on that high and holy day, that Passover uh, supper was also a scapegoat. You remember that? People would lay their hands on the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would be sent away outside the camp into utter darkness. And it was a picture of their sins being removed. And along with the scapegoat, there was another goat that would be slain. And blood would be applied. So over and over, they had that picture with the Passover supper of their sins being removed, expiated, taken away because blood had been applied. So with the application of blood, there's deliverance. And with deliverance, there's this understanding that deliverance is deliverance from sin. Sin's going to be gone. It's going away. Being delivered from it. It's being sent away. So over and over, they see this picture. Again and again and again. It's a reminder. It tells them this. God is going to deal with your sins through the death of the lamb. That's what it tells them. That's what it tells us. And we know that Jesus 
is that lamb. Everything that the Passover pictured for centuries, vividly, again and again and again, points to Christ, who is the Passover lamb of God, who came in space and time and died a vicarious death, there bearing our sin debt in his body and imputing his righteousness into our account where we might be declared justified before a holy God in Christ. This picture came to fruition in Christ. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now we get to look back. We're in a wonderful position in life. We get to look back and see them both. He's the Passover lamb. Now we talked about his his virgin birth and his entering into the world today in our, our, our morning study. But there was a time appointed by the Father where he will step into his earthly ministry. And it's going to be initiated. How do you remember how it was initiated? John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist do? His name gives it away. He baptized, right? Yeah. So he was baptizing people in the baptism of repentance in preparation for the promised Messiah. And at that time, Jesus steps onto the scene and his earthly ministry uh, uh, in all intents and purposes begins right there. And so in that context, John the Baptist is going to, Jesus is going to come and have John the Baptist baptize him. And so as, as he's in, on his full grown, the kind of the apex of John the Baptist's ministry, the greatest man that's ever walked the face of the earth outside of Christ, declared by Christ, this, this anointed, set aside man of God is there baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. And as he's doing that, Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold, Behold the, Lamb God. the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. The sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God. And the greatest man to face this earth outside of Jesus Christ himself sees him and declares just that. Look right there. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then during Passover, Jesus lives a perfect life. His ministry begins in full order. A ministry of prophecy, of miracle working, of perfect obedience to the Father, glorifying the Father, profoundly declaring Himself to be the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And at the end of His ministry, He ascends the cross. And he ascends the cross at the very same time that the Jewish nation is celebrating Passover. So as the Passover lambs are being slain in order to perpetuate this ceremony that they have been commissioned by Moses to never stop doing as way of a reminder of the promised Lamb of God who is to come and deliver them from their sin. Jesus Christ, at that moment, as the ceremony is going on, ascends the cross in space and time. 
the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, is crucified during Passover. Now, let me say something to you. They got it. Okay? They got it. They didn't miss this. They understood. Was there some struggle? Was was there some, some power struggles there with the religious leaders? Yes. Yes. Does that mean every single person in the nation of Israel at that time got it? No. But did Israel get it? Yes. They got it. They knew exactly who he was. They understood. They knew Jesus was the Savior, and they responded in kind. They knew what the crucifixion of Christ was all about. They knew. Now, many, many people were, were crucified under Rome. That was a common thing. So this is, this is just, you know, crucifixion was nothing new. Many people have been crucified. But this crucifixion was unique. They knew. And so do we. We know. We scoff at the foolish shows. That raise questions and draw doubt and point fingers and bring up allegations. We know. We know exactly who Jesus is. The scriptures are not ambiguous here. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt who Jesus is. We know what his work on the cross accomplished. We understand what has transpired here. And that brings us to the provision itself. Look there in verses 29 through 32. Now we've seen the plan. We've, we've seen this, this beautiful promise here. And now let's see the provision itself. Look there in verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. (coughs) Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. Now, this is a sober moment. And often this this is where we have to put away this revision of history that is so prominent in our culture. We have this this notion in our culture now that's very... uh, um, kind of movement in our culture now that, that that would try to convince us that all that life is really is this this a very clean, pristine, clear-cut notion of oppressed and oppressor. It all works that way perfectly, exactly, across the board. It's just nice and tidy. That's foolishness. No such thing happens in history. No such thing happens among mankind. 
It's never that way. But we, we somehow, sometimes we, we can look back and we can look on this reality right here and we can do that. We can make that same mistake that never transpires that way in history. We just see this. Uh, sometimes we make the mistake of seeing this clear, clean cut picture. There's all of Egypt that is suppressing all of Israel. And it's just almost good and evil. But that's not true. All mankind is fallen. Israel's just as guilty as Egypt before uh, the standard of God's law, right? So we're looking at all y'all. I love it when I can work that in. All y'all guilty. And the fact is, human history doesn't work that way. It's not that clean. All the Egyptians were not evil and awful and mean and suppressing Israelites who were slaves in that nation. There were relationships there. There was care between families. There were friendships. You understand how life works. There were children. You know, children break all the rules, right? There were children that played together. There were real relationships, real interaction between people, real uh, uh, homes that had overlap in this cultural dynamic. Don't be naive. Don't let people, uh, um, even in our culture, revision history for you and make you think in this terms. It's not how human nature works. There's dynamics here. There's human experience here. We're all guilty before God. There's interplay and interworking in these contexts. They knew one another. There's gray areas in real life. Let me put it this way. The Israelites heard the groaning. Okay? They heard the wailing. And this death was pervasive. It touched everybody. Death came to Egypt that night. Death came. And you either dead as a firstborn, or you were delivered of the blood on the lintel on the doorpost. One or two. That's it. Everybody was affected. Death of the firstborn are delivered by the blood. That's it. <clears throat> but they heard the groans. And their hearts were vexed in many ways for the Egyptians because they too were guilty before only God. But God had simply chosen to set them apart by mercy. According to his good pleasure, they were recipients of his mercy. They're not over there cheering like they were at a football game for the good guys. It doesn't work that way. Their provision of deliverance comes in the context of judgment. That's sobering. The same is true for us. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, that's true of you. Your deliverance comes in the context of judgment, and that's to sober you. Now, here's the big question, right? Here's what's looming in this picture here. Is God's judgment just? Yes. Yes. It's just. 
but it's also soul suffering horror to experience it. But it's yes, it's just. That should humble us, that should sober us. God's people experienced mercy. They were spared. They did not receive what they deserved. You're not looking at a raucous fan base for some team. You're looking at people humbled by death. The reality of death is humbling. It humbles us even to the point we should, we should, we should be shocked that God even hears us. Death comes to us all. It's humbling. But they were spared. And then we get to verses 31 and 32. And finally, finally, Pharaoh relents after his firstborn is dead. Finally, he relents and he calls for Moses and Aaron that very night. And he says to them, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. And here it is. And go. Go and worship, just like you said, like you told me that God had told you what you what you must do is to go and worship. You told me that God told you for me to let you go so you could worship him. And now the, after the death of his son and the firstborn of everyone else and every animal belonging to Egypt, just death of the firstborn. Now he comes and say, go worship. Okay. I get it. Go worship. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. So you see this? The deliverance was comprehensive. Again, that's all y'all. That's what Pharaoh said. All y'all go. You want what you remember when you wanted the kids for a while, right? Well, you know, some of you can go, but give me, give me the wife, give me the women, give me the children. Y'all can go. Men can go. Y'all can get this worship of God done. Uh, you do it my way. I need, a little, I need a little guarantee. So let me have the rest. Now we're to the point. He says, all y'all, go. Do what your God told you to do. And bless me. It's comprehensive. It's paid in full. There's a picture here. It's paid in full. Full and complete, but it comes with a journey. This is a picture of their deliverance, but their deliverance is a picture of our salvation. Our salvation is paid in full. It's full and complete. It's comprehensive, but it comes with a journey. They're going to go on a journey. It's not instantaneous. It's settled, but there's a journey. It's immediate. It's unconditional, but there's a process. Do you see? There's a picture here. Go forth and worship. Serve your Lord. Here's the application for us as we go out this resurrection day. When it gets hard, we don't forget. Here's one simple encouragement from me to you as your pastor. This is not your home. If there's anything that the exodus screams to us and it screams much to us, it screams this. This is not your home. This is not your home. You're on a journey. You're a pilgrim. Your sin debt is paid in full. It's finished. But your journey is not. Unconditional. It's comprehensive. But there's a journey. 
And when it gets tough, when it gets hard, you remember this. This is not your home. It's not your home. Don't become obsessed with the treasure of this world. Don't make that foolish error. Now, hear me. We live in, 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 a, in a context, in a culture up at least to this point, uh, that, there's been, uh, uh, that there's been much wealth, material wealth. And, and George Mueller, Mueller said it best, you know, make as much money as you can so you can give more. I'm not telling you not to have things. I'm telling you not. I'm, use them wisely. What I'm saying to you is don't be obsessed with the treasure of this world. Those are two different things. Am I making sense? I'm not telling you to sit in poverty. I'm not telling you to be foolish and, and, and squander away what wealth you could, uh, you could obtain for good purposes to honor God. you got to work that out between you and the Lord. What I am saying is do not fall prey to the foolishness of being obsessed with the treasures of this world. This is not your home. It's not your home. Remember, we don't get it all here and now. You got to think that way as a Christian. It's not all here and now. We don't get it all here. We are on a journey. This is not our home. Glory awaits us. You don't get it all here and now. And God reminds us of this reality. You know how he reminds us of this reality? The same way the scripture here tells us that the Passover reminds us. You know what reminds us as Christians? of this reality that we must hold on to, to rightly honor God as the body of Christ until he calls us home, the ordinances. They're pictured here. Did you see them? Don't miss them. The ordinances are pictured here. The ordinances are given by God to us to remind us in a much more full and profound way of what the Passover was given to remind Old Testament Israel. This very thing. This is not your home. Don't get obsessed with the treasures of this world. You're not going to get it all right now. It's not all now. It's not all now. It's the ordinances. They remind us of who we are in Christ. They remind us that the lamb has been slain. The blood has been applied, but you're on a journey. And God will see you through. That's the point. That's what the ordinances tell you. Every time you participate in the supper, every time when you are marked off with your baptism into the body of Christ, publicly before God and man, then you are marked off to the ordinance of the supper. And every time you partake the supper, God is telling you not just this, but certainly this. This is not your home. You don't get it all now. Whatever you're going through now, whatever struggles you're having, whatever difficulties you're having now, or that might come before I bring you to your uh, consummate in and glory with me forever, I'll see you through them. I'll see you through them. The lamb has been slain. The blood has been applied. I'll see you through. That's what it tells you. I'll see you through. He will fully deliver you. I'm not going to drop you off. This is not your home. I'll see you through. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever you're fearing, struggle with fear, so do I. So do I. Whatever you're fearing, remember this. Christ has raised, excuse me, Christ was raised from the dead on your behalf. That's what resurrection 
Lord's Day is all about. The resurrected Savior who chose to be resurrected on your behalf for his own glory. He was resurrected on your behalf because he set you apart before the foundation of the world to make you his own and glorify himself through you, his salvation of you. He was resurrected on your behalf. He is the Passover lamb and he will complete the work that he has begun in you, dear saint. He will complete the work he has done in you. He will not drop you off. He will not leave you in your fear. He will complete the work he has begun in you. Amen. Praise be the Lamb of God. Glory be to his name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. For our Savior is the resurrected one. His resurrection validated all his claims to be Christ. The Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the promised Messiah, the slain Lamb of God. He is our resurrected Lord. And in his resurrection, we have hope. We have assurance. We have the guarantee of our salvation in Christ alone. You will not. You have promised us that you will not leave us. What you have begun in us, you will complete. When we have fear, when we have doubt, when we, have, uh, um, when we are anxious, when we are struggling, Your word rings true to us. You will not leave us behind. You will not leave us alone. You will see us through. You will bring us all the way through to your uh, to our glorious appointment in you with you in heaven. We know this because our Savior is the resurrected one. And in his resurrection, we have assurance of your guarantee upon our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.